Today's episode is brought to you by Pale Horse Media Co. Head on over to www.palehorsemedia.co for more of your favorite shows, books, and merch. I have two brand new releases for you over at Pale Horse Media Co. The first one, In His Name, My First Dive Into Fiction. It is just a fun, cool thriller if you're into that kind of sort of thing. And and we have the second expanded edition of the original, of the OG Safety Sucks, the bullshit and the safety profession they don't tell you about. I go through, I expand on some thoughts, add some bonus material, reflect on some of the chapters. So if either of those sound like things you should be interested in, again head over to www.palehorsemedia.co CO or find them on your Amazon marketplace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of your support of the books of the podcast of the merch store of everything. It truly means the world to us. This, this, this show is brought to you by safety FM. Another episode of the Hop Nerd Podcast coming to you live from the sunny and the beautiful downtown Phoenix, Arizona. Before we get started, make sure you head over to the website www.thehopnerd.com. Send me an email, thehopnerd at gmail.com. Follow along on all things social media at the Hop Nerd, except for Twitter because it is super duper special. It is the Hop Nerd One. Use that handy dandy phone number to send me a text, leave me a voicemail, give me a call. I might even answer. Who knows? Either way, get into touch, slide into the DMs, use the email, whatever means necessary to have this conversation. Because I believe through that conversation, through this community, that's how we make the world a better place to work. So today is awesome once again, because we have part two of my conversation with the amazing and the great Ian Allison. So I'm not going to dive in too much if other than saying if you haven't listened to the first one, go back and listen to the first one. Um, it was awesome. I don't want you to miss anything. So please go back, take a listen. Uh, this is part two. So listen to part one before part two. That makes sense, right? Makes sense to me. But here we go. I'm not going to hold you up anymore. We're going to jump right in. Here's about another hour or so. <laughs> talking and hanging out with my good friend so, you know what's funny Ian is, uh, going to the investigation route mm-hmm. I've done learning teams in supply chain um, but not in the same exact way that we've done it in other mm-hmm. parts of our organization like specifically for safety um, but learning teams it's the best it it's it's applicable to uh, everything because yeah. I've done I'm do, doing an assessment right now to find out uh, why we have so much excess in our storerooms. Um, and a part of it is just sitting sitting the storekeepers down, sitting the employees down to actually do the work and be like, all right, if you ran the world, how do we fix it? Yeah. You know, where, where do you see the biggest gaps? Where do you see – like I'm not interviewing any frontline super – I'm just really interviewing frontline supervision to like almost have leading questions of like – my questions are framed based on the answers that I already received, and they're like, "Oh yeah, 100%. That happens all the time." Right. And it makes me realize, like, "Oh my goodness!" Like, I've been using RCAs. You know, I've, I've followed, I've driven taproot off the edge of a cliff because I've led so many investigations where it's like root cause, fault tree analysis. That's linear thinking. While there is a time and a place for it, it's just one tool. 
you know, you wouldn't use a ratchet to hammer in a nail, right. but we do that in our organizations. We're just like root cause, root cause right. every single time when really we should open that tool bag of investigation, you know, techniques and methods and right. say what fits, what, what, what is most applicable. But to offer that many programs, I think just organizations, they love to be married to one mm -hmm. program, yeah. one type of uh, investigative process. That's a, really hard, that's, that's a really hard thing for organizations to acknowledge and kind of live with. Um, whether it be with process or procedures, that there's not one right way to do things. Mm -hmm. We have a hard time. We struggle with that with rules all the time, procedures. We think black line, right? We struggle with that a lot because we assume that there's only one right way to do stuff. And really, right. you, know, I, you know, there's probably thousands of right ways to do stuff and thousands of wrong ways to do things. And I really like the point that you're making, though, is that root cause is a useful tool. I will not argue that root cause is not useful. It can be a useful tool. Taproot can be a very useful it tool. It can be. I think it's it the most can important. can be, yep. right? But at the point that you that you were getting to, it's, again, I just love that, is that there's tons of different ways to learn. Right. And you have to choose the way that will work best for what you're looking at, right? And that requires you having somebody who has a pulse in the organization. Mm -hmm. Like not just – the C-suite, not just your executives, middle management. I mean, the front line, the people who you're going to be engaging for this investigation, find out what's going to work for them. You know, yeah. and, and it could vary by crew to crew. Maybe they would prefer a sit-down learning team, and others would right. rather like I'm not going to speak up in a room full of my peers. Right. I would rather be sat down one-on-one -on -one in a room with just me and you, and I'll tell you everything you need to know. Right. Because that's something that I'm finding is. I, I treat because learning teams worked. I'm just like, okay, learning teams 100% because I found something that worked, found something that yielded results. And now I'm seeing the disparity in my processes because it's not all frontline employees that are involved. I mean, right. it's not in safety as well, but like with events, the people who have the solutions are the ones who are doing the work. In my instance, it's like everybody has a touch point throughout mm -hmm. the organization. So, And it's not feasible to get you know people from – procurement, materials management, planning, to get everybody in a room and say, hey, guys, how do we fix yeah, this? You know, right, Out of your right. busy day-to-day, -day, all the backlog you have in planning, how do we make this Give better? Give me two hours a day and then two right. hours a couple of days from now. Yeah, they're just like, have you seen my calendar? I'm triple booked every single day. Like The only way you can get me is on Saturday. There's no way. You, yeah, and so it's... Yeah, it's, good luck. Yeah, good luck. And so I guess my question to you is, outside of learning teams, is there anything that you've seen that has been effective or something you've yeah. been interested in trying out? I think a lot of what I've seen, so I, the, the general learning team model I think is, is super useful. I think you can do some hybrids of that too. I'm, I'm not sold, again, back to there's not one right way to me to do many things. Um, I think there's a lot of really good kind of should do's around learning teams, but I think you can apply it in a few different ways. Um, one that I've seen that's been really handy lately is just the thought of bring to meetings or you, you have a problem and you're asking folks just to bring two solutions to the problem. And you can do that in a formal meeting. You can do that through email. Huh. You can do that through, hey, hey guys, here's here's a problem that we're having. Um, people, you know, what, what what's what's two solutions to that problem? Um, however you're comfortable getting that to me, get that to me. Right? That, that's been super handy. I've, I've found that really to be really, really useful. And just bring two meetings. Um, I think one that's really, really good is just listening sessions. And you kind of went down that path of saying maybe people are just comfortable coming in to talk to you. Right. Listening sessions don't have to be conducted in group settings. You can have kind of a focus group in a listening session just to go in and, and try to figure out how stuff actually occurs and find where friction points are at. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's a really handy tool. And that's what I, that's what I share with people a bunch um, to kind of get back onto a couple subjects too that we've already hit on. Um, I really think that uh, – and, and – 
to pick on Josh Bryant some more. He just had some amazing stuff that he mentioned on the podcast because he's just an awesome, awesome safety practitioner. Um, kind of the shift in understanding what our job is. Our mm-hmm. job isn't to go out and control people and control risk and do all that stuff. Our job is really to go out and learn. And that's where we're trying to get to with these meetings. We're trying to understand. We're trying to gain operational intelligence. We're trying to understand how stuff actually happens so we can seek betterment through that path. Um, and I think you get there through learning teams. You can get there through bring two meetings. You can get there through listening sessions. You can get there through black line, blue line meetings. Uh, and they, none of this, the point that I'm really trying to get through with a lot of people is this stuff doesn't have to be super formal. And I think that's where most organizations have kind of their fatal flaw is they want to make everything one big procedural something that everyone does exactly the same because it worked here and then we want to spread it everywhere and then we sink the ship trying to do it that way when really there's a lot of different things that uh, again a learning team does not have to be super formal right um just going out and having some listening sessions or just general curiosity (laughs) i think is probably pretty healthy um which i think we lack sometimes in organizations because we go down this very heavy rule-based kind of path Mm -hmm. of just follow the rules, follow the procedures. Um, But what I share with people is kind of this general list of kind of questions that if you really want to go out and find stuff to work on, go out and ask people what sucks about their job. Just ask that question. Yeah, that's great. Just ask people where are things harder than it should be? Where do the rules not make sense? What's a process that's just stupid, right? And when you ask that, people will totally tell you stuff, right? If you go out and say, well, why aren't you following the rule? They're going to be, what the hell do you mean I'm following the rules? Yeah. <laughs> I always follow the rules just this one time, right? But when you ask them to tell you about the friction points in their work, they'll gladly tell you. They'll gladly tell you, and you can really get into some, at least some either that will give you some some stuff to run with and go work on, or it will give you a starting point for some focus groups or some learning teams. And I guarantee you, being on the other side of it now, non-safety, that what you hear in safety, you'll probably hear somewhere else. If someone tells you, well, our procedures suck, and you have a safety lens, mm-hmm. you can go to any part of your organization. Your procedures probably are, quote-unquote, suck all yeah. across your organization. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's something that we forget, that procedures are never going to be perfect, mm-hmm. right? And I'll just pick on procedures, processes, just stuff in general. Um, they're never going to be perfect. They're never going to be all-inclusive. There's still going to be 4,700 other ways to do the same thing the right way, mm-hmm. right? And we pretend like that procedure is the one right way to do things, Right, so they're always going. There's always going to be some some massive problems with rules and procedures and kind of all that general stuff. But in the safety space in particular, we kind of forget this general rule that all of those processes and systems they're consistently getting worse. Right, they're always degrading. So when we put stuff out, we just assume for whatever reason. Okay, we fix the problem. Everything's fine now. <laughs> we have we we have a rule for it. Again, we could we could talk about yeah. all, all the flaws leading up to this. Procedures is a whole other podcast right. episode. But, yeah. but it just just our processes, systems, approaches, all this stuff, just in general, we fix it, and now all of a sudden we we we're good. The organization thinks that we've we've kind of picking on investigation, the root cause. We've prevented this event from happening this exact same way ever again, yeah. even though it would never happen this exact same way again anyways. But we have a fix for it, right? And we get into this space where we aggressively kind of go after and fix the wrong things. It's in print. We're covered. Right, exactly. But I think what's what's really interesting to me, um, what, I, what I found to be um, kind of my main goal or mission, I guess, um, is that – when we have a learning team, when we seek out learning, even if an event triggers that, 
a lot of times we're not going to find really good corrective actions for the event, but we're going to find general betterment opportunities. That's a, that's a salient point, and I think you've 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 changed my mindset. Um, I think I've heard it from Todd second, but first from you, and you're probably regurgitating something that you've heard from Todd sure, probably, or Sidney yeah. Decker, but it was that uh, everything doesn't need a corrective action, right, right? you know? But but in from my roles I was in, where you're always like, all right, what's the CAs? When's mm-hmm. the due date? Who's the owner? Right. And then when's the effectiveness reviews? We can make sure that those corrective actions were going to be, uh, that you implemented are actually um, still taking root, and they're actually yielding positive results. Right. Um, and to me now, I wish I was in that role again to, mm-hmm. to say like push back and to, was, uh, look at the event and truly say like, hey, there's nothing we could we could have done, and there's nothing we can do. Um, but here's some other stuff that we found in process. Right, right. You know exactly what you're saying. You you always find other stuff that maybe is more important. Just like what the, the root cause. That's why you're you're really just it frustrates me. You're looking through a pinhole and you're just like, there's all this other crap that we need to fix. Like what we're evaluating is the least of our worries. We have impending doom in all these other locations and you want me to focus on just this one particular thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that was the most aggravating thing. And I, I, I wish I saw the light back then, yeah. you know, but well, and you, you end up so much of the time, especially with and not, not to pick on tap root and pick on root calls, but you usually end up back at SPAC anyways, with just right. about everything. It's always some administrative control, right. which is, I want to make the hierarchy of controls cool again. Like, I think that's, that's something we, we really need mm-hmm. to focus on anyways. We really need to get back to systems and engineering controls and kind of all that good stuff. We usually fall way down, down, down in the, uh, way down in that pyramid though. Um, but, and I, not to kind of get off on a side rant, but. Um, I was at uh, Safety Focus in Vegas, and um, I sat in a class on cognitive bias in safety, and it was it was super interesting. I can't think of the gentleman's name. I'll, I'll find it and put it in the notes below. But he did a, an amazing job on this class. But one of the coolest takeaways from this is he he examined organizations and kind of back to what we measure, measuring mm-hmm. what's important. He measured what percentage of corrective actions around events, serious events and fatalities, where they fell on the hierarchy of controls and turn that into percentages to say, well, 70% of your, your, your controls that's a, that, that's are, great. are administrative controls. You're, you're writing rules and you're, you know, you're doing stupid stuff instead of actually getting into essential controls. And he was primarily focusing this around SIF stuff. So it is the stuff that kills you, Right. And the stuff that kills you, it kind of happens in really simple ways if you really want to overly simplify it, is there's usually energy and there's a missing essential control and somebody dies. Right. So it seems like if you wanted to help stop that, we would put more into essential controls, right? the stuff that immediately stops you from dying. Um, but I just thought that was super interesting. I thought that was a really interesting thing to go out and measure that would, in an organization. that would drive – Desirable behaviors, right? Because yeah, that's yeah. Im- imagine a world where you have executives looking at that metric and they're like, "Why the heck are all of our corrective actions administrative controls?" Yeah. I want to see X amount percentage in engineering controls, you know, by the by the end of next quarter, by, yeah. by the end of the year, and they're gonna sit there and be like, "How the heck are we gonna? You know how much money that's gonna cost?" And but still, they'll find a way. You know, we're, we're we're all industrious. We all find ways to make things work, and that's a because those are lasting. Mm-hmm. You know, these engineering controls are going to be there as long as we maintain PMs, whatever the process is, right. to make sure that it it, it is maintained. It's going to serve its purpose. But 
you know, uh, dying on the hill for procedures is not the road because right. you can have a great employee. Eventually, that employee is going to move, going to take a day off, something. Mm-hmm. No matter what, no matter how you hang your hat on that process, it's not a resilient system. It's very fragile. No. And I, th- I think that's that's the really key part there is that. Um, so often we do focus on those things. I think it goes back to kind of what we were just talking about, the where, where we were kind of going talking about not requiring a corrective action for everything. Mm-hmm. I think if you take that and you, you, that's a pretty good measure, and especially if you kind of couple that with the stuff that kills you, you, you focus that into that space, not killing people. You don't. You obviously don't. I don't know if you focus that. I don't think you focus that down into kind of the normal bruise, cut, scrape kind of stuff because we're, then we're just going to end up with kind of in the same space right. because I think where we do get a lot of that stuff is there where we say, well, you had something happen, so you have to have a corrective action. So that's how I think we end up in a space to where we have rule books that are thousands of rules long and we have procedures that are 70 and 80 pages long, right? And because we have to have a corrective action for everything. And then when we have an event where they're really – wasn't the need for an essential control. There might have not really been a need for an engineering control. There wasn't sticky potential. It wasn't the stuff that kills you, mm. right? It was you, kind you, of you know what's funny is when you have these, when you try to proceduralize these really complex, really essential control measures, these uh, really things that are going to prevent serious injury, when you ask people, like all the, when you do that substitution test, you ask another individual would they have done it the same way, they don't reference the procedure. They, a lot of times they start with, well, if they're a good insert occupation, if they're a good electrician, they would have done this. If they're a good operator, they would have done this. If they're a good you know, X person, they would have done this. Yeah. And then it's just like, man, we really if, – if we're relying on someone's ability to be that good mm-hmm. that day all the time, like we're – you know, we're we're really hanging our hat on yeah. a real fragile system, mm-hmm. and that's why we keep killing people because we, yeah. we if we feel comfortable enough, we're like, well, the procedures are working, but really, it's it's our people that are holding that right. together. Right. You know, and we're we're almost fed. We almost uh, convince ourselves that oh, we're doing well because it's our procedures, but really, right. the people are finding ways to get the job done and keep themselves from getting killed. Well, I think I think it's a really interesting point that that, that Todd Conklin does bring up a lot. Um, is that fatalities hide in successful work, mm-hmm. right? And it really hides in kind of the mundane, kind of normal day-to-day stuff. That's usually where organizations kill people. Um, when we see the big, bad, scary, sketchy stuff, we're usually pretty good at the essential controls with that stuff. But the problem is, is most of the time where we have people die is so far outside of our imagination that someone could die in that situation. Because if we could have imagined it, we would have yeah. done something about it, right? Um, and and and. Todd was out visiting with us a couple of weeks back, and that's that's one of the things that he shared with me, and I thought it was so interesting, talking about power plants in general, is that the thing that scares him the most about power plants are stairwells, yep. right? Because they're constantly degraded, they're nasty and filthy and slippery, <laughs> and we there's thousands of them, and that's probably the most, that's that's our prime opportunity to kill someone, you know, it's, is it's, rolling down the set of yep. stairs and off the side of a unit, right? <laughs> when we go through outages, we do critical lifts, we do these things that we do once a year. We 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 come out those unscathed, and for yeah. zero cultures, we use that as for our most high volume, most dangerous work. We we come out of that with zero recordables. There's no way that we can't believe that we can do that for the rest of the year, or like that's evidence right there that we can do it for X amount of years. We can do it for you know for forever. Yeah. Um, but really, it's it's exactly what you're talking about. It's the day to day stuff that is causing the most serious injuries. And I I can look back at our organization, and it's just the stuff. That 
that you become comfortable with, right. you know. Um, right. And the, it, it still can be really dangerous stuff. Right. Minimum For approach sure distance. If you're it, yeah. doing that every day, that's going to get closer and closer to uh, being more comfortable. And mm-hmm. maybe that 10 feet becomes, you know, a shorter and shorter distance. If you're handling caustic on a daily right. basis, same thing. Yeah. But if you're handling caustic once – a year, you're gonna take every yeah. You're gonna you're gonna be super <laughs> right, cautious. Right. You're gonna make sure you got everything in a row before you even proceed. Um, well, I think that that's an interesting point to bring out. You know, um, professional drift and kind of all that stuff. That's normal, mm-hmm. and I think that's part that that the organizations don't necessarily recognize. Again, all that stuff is in a constant state of degradation. Right, we're constantly degrading. We're constantly kind of moving towards drift and we eventually drift towards failure or drift towards fatality. And we don't understand, I think, as organizations, again, back to the point that we fix something, we think that the world is fine now. Mm. Or we insert essential control, and now we don't con- continuously check on essential control. Um, I, that's where I kind of get down this path of um, – and I, I beat up stop work all the time just because it's <laughs> just a dumb thing to say a lot of times. <laughs> it's a great tool. Don't get me wrong. Everyone should have that ability. Most people do, right? But the problem is is we by the time we, we realize we should have stopped, we're already dead. <laughs> but yeah, um, and then, we, then we blame the dead person for not stopping. Usually, that's usually yeah. what, what we're really good at. <laughs> but I've gotten down down this this uh, again having this conversation with Todd a couple weeks ago, uh, really getting keyed up in, into this whole start work thing. I think start work is way more important than stop work, and especially when we get around um, the stuff that kills us. You know, and 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 I've had this conversation with some of the other other folks I've had on too, but really talking about you know. Do we have fatality potential in the work that we're doing? Is there stuff that could reasonably kill us? Not not our normal safety definition of, yeah, I could trip in the parking lot and fall and roll mm-hmm. and break my leg and then get run over by a car and die. But do we have actual fatality you know, fatality potential in this job? Um, or as most of us like to say, is, is there sticky stuff, right? Is there stuff that can kill you? Um, and if we do, what are the essential controls? And then following that up with, are those essential controls enough? Are they really robust enough if all crap hits the fan? Will we not die? And I think asking those questions before we start is really important. And I, I think if companies would take more time in investing into start work criteria rather than stop work criteria, I think we'd see a, a, that needle move a little bit. And it goes back to the uh, the gift I gave you on the goal. That supports the, everything you're saying supports mm-hmm. the goal of stop killing people. Right. You know, enhance, in, increasing awareness around essential controls, less focus on you know OSHA recordables. Right. And then looking at opportunities of where you're highly successful, where, where we pay zero attention to, where the things yeah. that we do every single day that has potential to seriously injure us or kill us that we pay no mind to because for, gen- for, for decades we've had zero injuries in that space. Mm-hmm. We would never look there right? right. because uh, we've never had an ankle sprain. Potentially, be, you know, <laughs> right. that you, an right. ankle, an ankle sprain, twisted ankle, fractured ankle. That's probably the worst thing that could have happened at mm-hmm. that with that particular event. Um, but then we really should be paying attention too to the potential events. You know, the SIFP, going to SIF, the PSI, all of those right. metrics. Right. I, I think that is a great direction to be headed that yeah. supports the goal. And I, I think, I think for me, that that's where I kind of land with that. It kind of gets back to that goal. I think you make that the goal. Let's not kill people. Right. I think I think that's a good place to to, to aim for zero fatalities, right? Yeah. Um, I think that the scary part that most organizations do is they go down this path of of SIF potential, 
and mm-hmm. sift precursors, and then we kind of do the same thing we've been doing in a roundabout way, and we end up driving people from not we, – we end up case managing potential. Right. And saying, well, this really wasn't sift potential, so uh, we, we don't well, want to go down that path. I agree with you. Yeah. I, I think that's really easy to screw up and really easy to mm-hmm. to misuse, right. and I think there's a lot of – especially in organizations I've worked in, it's really easy to mismanage. Yeah. SIF, SIFP, because you're going to look at that. Why we were, we reported four last quarter. I'm not clicking then, that box. Yeah, <laughs> right? and then this quarter we've only reported three, right. and then you know whatever. We're going down. We're yeah, we're going downward. down, or or yeah. somebody views it the other way. I need more SIFP events. You know, I know I know stuff's <laughs> happening. You know, and you guys aren't reporting. Because that's exactly what we yeah, do right yeah. now with close calls, good catches. Well, it's, what you did, you've, you've listened to those conversations, and they, they occur, uh, and I've seen them across the board in organizations because we like good catches because good catches are good things and mm-hmm. close calls are good things, right? Um, but we go out and we say, we want more, and what do we get? We get more, get right? More. You, we say we want less, what do you get? You, you get less. And I think the real important part um, for me that I found, no matter what the classification or really the outcome of the event is, is getting into what's learning rich. And I think that's a better question to ask. Because we What's don't, learning rich? Yeah, we, we, we don't pair – exactly what you said earlier. We don't pair these metrics down. Mm-hmm. When we tell a plant manager, I want you to hit your budget, he manages to that. Right. He doesn't tell his front line, like, here's our budget, mm-hmm. and we need to make sure we don't hit this, and we need to be under, if anything. Yeah. All right, go make it happen. Like, he finds ways to integrate those – uh, integrate that goal into his operation, his her operation, and then they achieve it. They they, they strive as as a group, and they 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 message it every single day. Everything they do yeah. is around uh, that goal, and I think that's something in safety we really need to do. It's just like, hey, you can track these me- measures, you can track SIFP, PSI, and give it to the managers, give it to middle management, but then just leave it there yeah. and be like, hey, you guys manage your actions based on what we gave you. Don't publicize it downward right. and dictate like, hey, wh- what's going on here? You guys need to be reporting stuff. Right, right. And I think that's it. I mean, you, you put a number on something, whether it's a zero or a five or a ten, and you, people are going to give you what you ask them to give mm-hmm. you, right? Um, and and uh, we get into this space where we like to really view things as, and I, I pick on this all the time, but we like green boxes, yellow boxes, and red boxes, and we always want to be in the green, and if we're not in the green, it's bad, and it really doesn't ever tell us a lot, right? It's just another spreadsheet that somebody manages and then folks work on and manage and we say well we can't have more than two because that puts us in the yellow i don't want to deal with that (laughs) meeting and you definitely don't want to have five because that puts us in the red and then people are going to come out here and they're going to talk to us about it it's going to be a big deal so let's just make sure we end up in the green and as we were kind of discussing we really just get good at managing to a green box making sure that that we don't trigger that formula in the spreadsheet (laughs) right so we we stay under whatever whatever number that is um when really what we should be focusing on is rather than having x number of this or x number of that um, how much are we learning you know what what, what are the learning rich events um, are we addressing things as we should when we do have something that had SIF potential instead of saying well we need three or two or none of those are we actually going through and getting into some serious control are we actually looking at essential controls and, and stopping that from happening um, I think that's just a better investment for us right rather right. Than, than just saying well 
we want three of this or two of this or historically this is the one that this is the one that kills me especially in our industry is we're so afraid to step out of lockstep with other utilities oh my <laughs> right? gosh that well they're using this yeah. so we're going to use this and they God. trend they're a similar organization and they use this number so we're going to use that god <laughs> forbid that we we uh, go against the grain and don't follow edison electric institute <laughs> you know i i think that kills me well we're in top decile we got a shoot for top quartile i'm just like oh my goodness we're never I, gonna... you know it's 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 and even not to beat up on that too much, but it's the fact that we turn around and try to operationalize that down mm-hmm. to, to the kind of points that we're making. We try to use that as, well, can't you all see mm-hmm. you're screwing up? <laughs> right? we, we yeah, put we have down. the same exact programs as X Utility, mm-hmm. but the, here's their yeah. where they rank in EEI. Why are we not on the same and you know, level, totally if not better than that? in the context and the unique challenges and right. all the kind of stuff that, again, the, the thousands of other things that we could insert there for context. Mm-hmm. Right, it's just totally lacking of that. So yeah, I think that that that's really interesting as we trying to start to grow, um, or most organizations are kind of going down this same path. Again, most folks that I've talked to, they're in that place of moving away from really measuring the the absence of stuff, right? Measuring the zero and really getting into what's the presence of positives and what does that actually look like for an organization, and that could be anything, right? I, I think about uh, the utility space and the power plant space in general. Um, what what does our percentage of you know going out and and verifying lockout tagouts? What's that actually look like, right? How many times do we catch stuff that's wrong and we fix it? That seems like a pretty cool measure to me, right? Or mm-hmm. how how does our you know until we slap a good catch close call on it and then it gets then it becomes and then, a thing, and then, right? and then people don't report it, right? And then, and so it, it really gets into that point of when you really want to learn. Um, I just I just had a a, a big talk about this not too long ago actually today <laughs> so like a total of like six hours ago or something um talking about our assumptions back to the assumptions our underlying assumptions around human error and how those influence our reactions to events right and i think that's super important because that whole reactions matter the management response matters i think that's a really important point and that's kind of where that goes uh, is when someone tells us something um we have to be able to welcome bad news. Right. And do we really view it as bad news? Um, obviously, fatality is always bad news. I'm not going to argue that point. Um, but when we have someone say, hey, you know, we almost killed somebody, mm-hmm. we should probably view that as good news. It's bad news, but it's good news, right? And I think it gets to this point where we've been kind of fanboying a little bit with some of Conklin stuff, but this is a Conklin thing too um, that I just love it, is that when you have that event reported – and you ask yourself that question, were we good or were we lucky? That's a really that's a really good question to ask. Right. Right. Did 100%. our essential controls work? Yeah. As they should, we were good. Did we have missing essential controls and by the grace of God we did not kill somebody? Okay, that's still good because we can learn now. So no matter what, no matter which way you answer that question, I think organizations historically have kind of went down that, oh, we were lucky, that's bad. But they're both really, really rich learning opportunities. So I think the way we respond, the way we view those things, the way that we welcome bad news, um, because I think this this was a point that I made with a group today, um, and it's straight out of the Five Principles book. So I totally just ripped it off and put it in the presentation nice. uh, from Todd. Hey. But number one, it's, it's, it's this, this agreement number one is that all reporting is ultimately voluntary. Whether it's mandatory or not, it is still voluntary, right? Uh, and number two we have to be in a position to where we welcome bad news. 
So if we start down that path of understanding that if we want to be learning-based, if we really want to be a learning organization, um, we have to be able to welcome the bad news. We have to understand that everything that we do either encourages or deters reporting, and it kind of starts there. Again, we have to be able to recognize that it's voluntary, that people are constantly watching to see what our reaction is. Uh, and if it's not so great, uh, if we destroy that environment um, to throw in a little bit of a buzzword that goes around right now, so of psychological safety, <laughs> right, um, we don't allow people to have interpersonal risk-taking, <laughs> then, then we end up in a position where we just don't learn at all because people aren't going to trust us. Um, and trust and honesty is a whole other conversation. But <laughs> I think it's so hard because ultimately we're trying to – Hang our hat on something that really can't be quantified, right? And uh, even even in organizational behavior within my program, the professors really rag on the OB guys because they view OB as like a soft, squishy profession. Mm -hmm. And for them, the other guys, they're more operational based, hard numbers. Right. You they they can measure improvement, and you can quantify the qualitative. Um, but even then, it's, it's a relative measure because it all depends on somebody's ability to code, uh, codify conversations and everything, but conversations and interactions. But I think that it, it is the right direction to go down to tell people you, you don't need to measure this. Right. Like it, it really can be a feel thing. Um, and if you are killing less people let's, and killing no people, mm -hmm. that should be – like you should be able to hang your head on that and say, okay, we're doing great. Right. You know, and if you're if you're potential, and you have those conversations about are we good or are we lucky, I think you're always going to have those. But your actions, what you do after, yeah. you're not you know, you're not going to be um, vilifying that employee for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You tell them like, are you okay? You have everything everything you need to be successful, and then go forward and include them in solution and say, how can we make this better so right. this so we can reduce the likelihood of this happening again? We can put an essential control in front of this. Uh, really bad thing that almost killed you. And that was that was a lot of my conversation today. Was that was that um, we kind of have these biases that lead us towards this whole thing as error being a choice, and then it kind of leads us down that path of getting even instead of getting better because it feels good and it feels like the right thing to do because mm -hmm. we have those underlying assumptions that you know that person made that decision because of the type of person that they are. <laughs> Right, or they're just a bad apple, or we we can go through a list of however many hundred cognitive biases that there are, and kind of all this junk that we definitely won't dive into today. Um, but we end up in that place that where that influences their reaction dramatically, where we say, "Well, if it were me, I would have, I should have, I I would have done this." And how could they have not seen? How could they have not known? Then ultimately, we get into this whole point, um, this whole point of, of, of labeling because it's easier for us, right? Kind of again, bias kicking in. Well. They were stupid. That's why that happened. And you know what they say about stupid? You can't fix that. So we're done. We can wash our hands of it. We can move on. Our corrective action was we had to stand down. We told everybody how stupid this person was, and we, we moved on with <laughs> we moved on with life. And then people see that reaction, and they just don't report stuff anymore. Right? They're just not comfortable telling this stuff. And I think that's just a really important piece to understand as organizations, if organizations um, that are out there going down this path, you, know, you really have to start with that assumption of going, okay, someone made an error, duh, right? Are you okay? What do you need? Who's getting you what you need? How can we learn from this? That's it. And, and, <laughs> right? and, and condition people to leave it just at that is yeah. like we'll learn when something is to be told to us. We don't need to get – 
have these various checkpoints throughout the investigation of like, so what'd you find? What'd you find now? Did you find anything else? Because let's say Did you, someone break a rule? Yeah. Because were they wearing gloves? Let's tell, say, me, tell me where they're wearing gloves. It's so <laughs> odd that in safety, everybody's the investigator, but if you had something involving a criminal, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, criminal issue, you had a theft, uh, you had a murder, something serious, your organization, everybody would be hands off and would say, they'll tell us when they have answers, right. but God forbid we treat, and not to, you know, put us in, in any, any stratosphere akin to that of law enforcement, but the, uh, an ideal situation would be, you know, when safety's done with the investigation, you know, they'll let us know what they found. And I think I think that's a really interesting part. We're kind of in this in this road, or just talking about reporting in general. Um, I love uh, the way Decker kind of talks about building reporting systems that you have to minimize anxiety. Mm. Right? You have to you have to increase accessibility and minimize anxiety. And I think this is out of just culture, but he also gets into this point of talking about confidentiality doesn't hurt either. Right, so just kind of in line with that is there's not a it's not a really bad idea if it fits in your organization to have folks that are kind of not involved in the general line to be able to to to, talk, to have this information protect this information if that's what creates comfort for people to to report stuff to you, um, but minimizing that anxiety I think really happens from changing the way that we react at all levels of the organization when something not so great happens. Again, I think I think a good way to kind of summarize a, a really honest culture is one where folks the boss can hear the bad news without his head exploding right. and throwing a chair and punching a hole in the wall perfect perfect example would be you know so when are you going to be done with your investigation if you don't give a date if you tell them we'll, we'll be done when we when we're done like they're they're going to go crazy yeah i mean that's that's a prime example because you imagine anybody listening you tell your boss like i'll be done when i'm done and but that not in a, I'm blowing it off way, but really it's like it's going to take as much time as it needs to. Yeah. Like that's an unacceptable answer because right. people upward or above me need to know what happened and what we need to do. I mean, yeah, of course there's inter, like immediate things you need to do to make sure that the potential isn't still there. But after that, you know, just let it run its course. Well, and I, th- I think it's something that's really interesting because um, I've almost got to the point uh, to where – and I, I suggest this all the time um, – for most organizations that are transitioning from traditional safety to more safety generally, is even just move away from the whole investigative thing. Because we almost approach it, again, not not to compare us to police officers either, <laughs> but you end up in the space to where we approach it kind of sort of the same way a lot of times. It's like, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to secure the scene, we're going to take our <laughs> pictures, we're going to examine where the rules are broken, and we're going to find who is at fault. And we don't come out and say that, but that's kind of where a lot of these processes mm-hmm. are leading. You go in and you excavate through all of this stuff with hindsight and known outcome and all the other biases that play into that. Um, and we find where someone broke a rule. Of course they broke a rule, right? You'll find that in successful work constantly, right, where, where rules were broken, procedures weren't followed, all that stuff. But now that we have an outcome that we're not pleased with as an organization, we, we hang our hat on that rule now that was broken and say, well, there's the cause, and it's back to the labeling conundrum that we were just talking about. Right. Um, there's a really there's a really interesting book out there for folks, and you'd actually sent me a picture of it from my office the other day. Yeah. It's called Dysfunctional Practices uh, by Timothy Lud- Lud- Ludwig. Ludwig? I think it's Timothy Ludwig. Um, and it's an excellent book, and there's a really some really cool stuff in there about labeling and kind of our, our desire to label stuff. Um, but it's 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 that right. I think as we start to grow and we mature in and around human and organizational performance, I think that's when you really can tell the difference in an organization where we find where someone had a violation, Uh-oh. <laughs> and we go, 
all right. <laughs> right. Right. And we go, well, yeah, they're a person. I could totally see how that could happen. Um, and I, I, th- I think that that's when you, when you have that shift is instead of saying, this is always a scary one for me when you hear, especially folks that are in the room looking at an event, say, if it were me, <laughs> or you hear a leader in an organization, well, if it were me and I were there, yeah. I would have done this differently. Um, when that conversation shifts from that to saying, well, if it were me, I would have probably done the same thing. Because, again, context influences behavior, right? You put yourself in that same situation, you would have probably broke the exact same rule mm-hmm. with all the pressures and all the other stuff that you were negotiating. So I think when you actually, when, when you see an organization flip from, again, that thought process to where if it were me, I would have been the, super, the, the Superman, everything would have been fine, to... I would have probably totally missed that too. And I would have probably done the exact same thing. And unfortunately, um, this has probably happened this way a thousand other times. And for whatever reason, the stars aligned today and things happened. And I think when you approach it from that, you move beyond a lot of that kind of reaction piece that we're talking about. You move beyond the need to get even and you get into the place where you go to get even things really not that important. The real important part is gaining the operational intelligence. Mm. That's the important part because I, I love this. And again, it's, it's from the, the five principles book. Um, so for folks that are not deep into hop, that would be the first book that I recommend people read. Um, it's just Conklin's latest book, but it's probably the first one you should read. And I love the way that he put this around the view of events that you can either view them as an operational cost or you can view them as an investment. And the whole point is that you want to view them as, as an investment, right? We can view them as a cost on our operations or we can view them as an investment towards betterment. And when we go down the road of seeing it as an investment, things are just a little bit different for us than what they, what they normally have been. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to see um, so many organizations go, go down this path and start to grow towards hop. And it is really a growth towards hop. I always like to share that with people. Is I like to uh, I like to pick on traditional safety a lot, as we all do. It's kind of fun, and it's yeah. it's 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 still kind of risque <laughs> to say all things are not preventable, and Heinrich can get out, and you know right. all this other kind of stuff. You know, um, it's, it's fun to challenge the sacred cows, but we are building you know up on kind of a, a lot of foundation that was laid over hundreds of years or hundred years ish. Mm-hmm. I guess about a hundred years, huh? Um, so I don't want to belittle all that stuff too much. And I think the, where I was going, where I'm going with this kind of rant on that is that um, when I was in Las Vegas this last week, uh, I got to sit in Bob Edwards' hop class, uh, and it was awesome. So for folks out there that have not got to sit in a class by Bob Edwards, you totally should. He has an amazing kind of, is it Tennessean? I guess it's Tennessean <laughs> accent. So he has he has a little bit of this twang that I have, so it's kind of soothing for me to listen to that. It's kind of nice. It reminds me of being home. Um, <laughs> but he defined hop. He kind of gave the traditional definition of hop. But he also tied in this definition of hop being the permission to bring in a bunch of stuff that works, to bring together a lot of stuff that works, but also the permission to get rid of all the crap from that stuff that doesn't work. We're so right? fearful of that. So when, when we look at stuff, we can say, there's really good stuff in lean that we can probably use, right? That aligns with our hot principles that we can pull in and use. There's probably good stuff from root cause analysis that we can use. There's some good elements of traditional safety that we probably shouldn't just, just kick out. There's some good elements of behavioral based safety. that's probably sound and just and stuff that we should use. Um, and so how do we pull that stuff together? I thought that was a really interesting, interesting thought about what the future of this stuff looks like. Um, and really just, 
taking that stuff, and as long as it lines up with their principles and it's applied through those principles as the lens, you could probably come up with some really amazing stuff. I think uh, – so I agree partly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you go down like the the lean – Kaizen process, optimization process, improvement, continuous improvement way. Like you need to be all in. You can't like dip your toe in. Sure. And I think that same can be said for really any of those processes that you mentioned. Just do it all in. Right. Like these aren't program. I, 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 I think yeah. Choosing what works. I think if you want to kind of have a a buffet kind of thing of yours, and and but but I think that's a good idea because you might yield quick results, but. I'm of a belief that whatever you do, just go all in. Like it yeah. needs to permeate every part of your organization, not just safety. You can't program it. You can't have divisions of say like, oh well, this program is just you know, hop is just for safety, but we're still going to do engineering and planning and operations this way. Right. I've had some really interesting conversations around just hop in general lately, where I've seen people kind of have that aha moment. I think we even t- we touched on this a little bit already, where um, but people have that aha moment where they go, "This stuff really isn't just for safety, is it?" <laughs> and they kind of see the general application. Right. Um, a really interesting place, uh, or a really interesting point that you get in your journeys with Hop is you get to this place where learning teams are used for stuff that's not safety related. And you mentioned some of that already. Yep. But they not only begin to start to get used for stuff that's not safety related, they start happening without. Folks really knowing about them happening. It's not like a thing. People just go out and start learning because they see the benefit in operational intelligence, whether it's about an event or whether it's about how we maintain um, adequate toilet paper in the bathrooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You, you pick, pick whatever, right? You end up with some really, really amazing learning stuff. And I think that's for me um, probably the best thing or the, the best way to describe what we're doing is really how do we get to true unhindered learning in our organization because I really think that's how we find and grow betterment in our organization because learning really is the only tool that we have, right? We pretend like we have this big toolkit of stuff that really helps us, but we really don't, right? I mean, learning is really the only thing that we have. So I think how we grow that, how we grow environments to learn is probably the most important thing, the openness, the trusting environments. And I, I, again, this is, this is the conversation I had today, which I thought was really interesting um, in and around organizational trust. And I thought that it, the, the thought was this, was that should you trust an organization or can you truly grow trust in an organization? And the whole conversation went down this path of, well, I don't trust companies in general, right? Not much less, I, I can't, I can't, so I can't say that I trust my own, right? I don't trust the bank. I definitely don't trust the government, yeah. right? I, I don't, I don't trust the insurance company, right? I don't trust the, the, the place where I get my oil changed. Like, so should I really trust my company? And a lot of that discussion was no, probably not. But what you can do, so this whole growing trust thing, who knows? But the whole thought was that you should just focus on creating environments where you can be truth tellers, where you can have openness and honesty. Uh, whether you get trust as a byproduct of that or not is probably another argument. I think but, if you can get to a point where your employees trust that if they bring something up, you'll do something about it, mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful place to be. Right. Yeah. Because well, I, I, most of organizations I see, you poll employees, they're probably not there. Right. Probably, yeah, sometimes if it if it's like a critical thing, maybe they'll do something about it right away. But, you know, if they bring up a solution, like you said, to improve the the process of how we'll never run out of toilet paper, they're like, yeah, that's not really worth my time. Maybe right. not, you know. And then, and then that guy might never – get guy, gal, person may never bring up something again because they're like, well, had your chance yeah. and they don't hear my voice. 
they don't acknowledge my you know uh, input. I think I think that's a really interesting point too. Is this this whole notion of and we we kind of hit on some of that, but the follow not necessarily just the follow through, but the follow up. Um, I see that a lot where folks bring up problems and their problem gets fixed, and then they just never realize their problem gets fixed. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really interesting piece too. That um, how do you how would you how would you approach that? I mean, I hate being the person to say, "Boy, you go out and you train leaders." Ugh. On how to yeah. how to be better leaders, I don't think that's the answer. We all uh, we already hinge too much uh, of our success on frontline leadership. I think they have way too much on their plate already. Um, I think it's I I think ultimately it's understanding one size doesn't fit all. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that goes with learning teams. Just because a frontline employee, a mechanic, came up with a solution. And that works for, and then that group all nods their head as like, yes, that would make our life better. Does not mean you can go to an identical site with the same number of people, and that same solution would work for them. And I think that is something that learning, and I'm seeing right now with my uh, attempt at learning teams, is like, hey, what 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 worked for this guy is going to work for these other ones. And I go and pitch that solution to them, and I'm like, well, that's dumb. Why would you do it that way? You know, I already have a fix for that. I don't, I, and here's how I make it work. I don't need to do it that way. You know, so don't force uh, a solution that came from the front line on other front line workers because it is ultimately a craft. Right. It is ultimately something that um, is, yes, it's a, it's a technical vocational skill, but there's a lot of creativity in that. And uh, some people achieve success different ways, and right. we should not essentialize a process or a solution. And I think that's something, um, especially for uh, entities such as power plants, or, and I guess it really it, it exists everywhere. I mean, if you're not just one sole proprietorship with one location, or if you're managing a fleet of anything, whether that's production facilities or power plants or um, – Amazon across the street, mm-hmm. right? Um, most organizations go down this go down this path of kind of traditional, back to kind of traditional stuff. This traditional fleet safety mindset that you have to make everything the same. Right. And if something works at location A and it worked really good at location A, then our main goal is to take what worked at location A and spread that everywhere throughout the enterprise. Because if it works good for A, it's going to work good for Z. And we just know how dumb that is. And that's, that's usually how things happen or how, how things really just – you take a really great something and sink it, right, because our desire because, to want to spread because it. Because God forbid family. our sites have identity and their right. own personality and their own I, way I, of doing I think business. that's something that, that, um, that I start to see more and more being super important is really celebrating the uniqueness of sites, the uniqueness mm-hmm. of locations – what makes them different is probably what makes them special. Right. And if you really dig into that and just kind of focus on that bright spot and growing it, you could probably come up with a lot better stuff than just trying to make carbon copies of stuff. Yeah, you, the you plants de- are always going to be much You definitely need to acknowledge, and going outside of utilities, anything going to your fleet mm-hmm. conversation, acknowledging the subcultures that exist within mm-hmm. your organization and acknowledging that every solution is not going to work for all of them. And really just trusting downward and going to that same point where you say a lessons learned event, whatever you want to call it, you give it to your plant and say, here's what happened. Mm -hmm. Communicate this to your plant or ensure that this learning is uh, implemented somehow, that there's some learning learning from this event or just give – I mean even then I'm like making it too – 
too corporate. Like, here's this event that happened at this location. Do with it what you will. I trust you that you're going to, you know, do what's best for your for your crew, whether that's just a communication or whether it's like, hey, let's all sit down and have a conversation about this. Do you guys know about it? You know, whatever. It's just like I trust you guys to do, you know, something with this information and yeah, something and productive. It, it kind of gets back or to Or nothing, some, like you right. said. Yeah, you don't have to do anything. The harder part for, for corporate entities, and just just – I mean, just corporate entities, it's the entire thing, I guess. But the harder part is to realize that nothing is an answer. Mm-hmm. To not have a corrective action is an answer. To not do a stand down is an answer. <laughs> that, that is totally an answer. And sometimes it, it not just sometimes it, it's just based off of what you're looking at, but it can be the right answer. Mm-hmm. To not have a corrective action can be the right answer because a lot of times we end up aggressively fixing the wrong things. Right? We end up. Um, taking this and doing a corrective action that actually causes harm later and then leads to something else. We never, we always view corrective actions as being positive and sometimes they can be super harmful, right? They can actually lead to bad things happening later on. You know know what I love hearing is I know our power plant isn't designed this exact same way, but this happened in this state and I wanted you all to know about it. Or I know we're not a nuclear facility, but here's what happened, and you're a coal plant, and I think that this is applicable here. And the employees are just like, oh, I think you should do an extent of condition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, somebody <laughs> right. reads an article, and then somebody's up late at night, sees something on Twitter, and they you know email it out, and they're like, communicate this, or make sure we don't have this critical right. flaw. Right. And it's just like, you understand all of these designs are way drastically different. I want an answer tomorrow. Okay, understand. But I think it, it probably goes back to some of what we were just talking about, right? It probably goes back to some of that – some of that, or just general conversation, not just the articles, but it's probably goes back to some of that those those, um, those thoughts on Taylorism that still kind of permeate a lot of organizations, right? This management theory that's been taught for a hundred years, that still continues to get taught, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to where we're going, corporate structure going to tell you what to do, right? And then we try to trickle that down, right? We kind of trickle that down that you know. We smart, you dumb, <laughs> right? We're going to tell you how to run your power plant. And really a lot of what we're doing, and we keep saying power plants because um, that's what Ian and I both kind of do a lot of, right, is power plant right. stuff. Um, but really anywhere, but we really take that, 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 that thought and stand it on its head and say, well, if you really want to know how to do something at XYZ location, you should probably go ask the person at XYZ location how to do that because they're the expert on doing that and doing it there. And if you go somewhere else, there's going to be another expert that does it, and it's going to probably be a little different than that expert, right? And it's accepting that. For as you said, you mentioned that this is it is a craft, right? It is a craft, and most companies um, really seek out highly skilled people. They train them, they 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 pay them a ton to be the experts, and then they don't lean on them as the experts, right? And that just kind of sucks. That's really the only way to put it is it just kind of sucks. And we, we, we bring folks into organizations. We, we, we invest a lot of time and money in them. And then we say, I know all the stuff we taught you. We taught you to be, to, to be thoughtful and thinking and, and adaptive, but we don't want you to do all that stuff. Keep, we want keep, you to follow the rules. We keep, keep going on these tangents, and I apologize to the listeners, but there's no. one that always got me in safety. It's when I go talk to a frontline employee and after a serious incident happened, so we had a lathe event uh, a number of years back where an employee got their sleeve cuff caught in a moving lathe, and they kind of got whipped around, and thankfully someone was there to hit the e-stop, and, you know, um, this, this, was a, this was a number of years ago at a different place, and um, so we went and kind of asked around a handful of other 
uh, employees that operated the lathe, you know, how would you do it this way? And I think what what and I think we need a, a an experienced person to kind of peel back the layers of the answer that I got, but it was really well. Everybody knows it's dangerous, and also everyone who's a good machinist knows that you're not supposed to. You're supposed to have your sleeves rolled up every time you do this. Mm-hmm. And that answer kind of didn't sit right with me at the time because it's just like, well, we need to do something. And I had this like urge. This was years ago, and I'm like, well, we need to do something. We need to do something. And uh, I don't know. I think the, the at, at some point too, we need to understand like jobs are just dangerous. Yeah. Some of these jobs, like we just can't do anything about. I mean, we can do a lot. We can do a lot, but there are some instances where there's just things that for these guys to do their job like that, that hazard just needs to be there. Like there's and that and that it's just a hazard. That's it's just that it just needs to be acknowledged. And uh, I think we need to understand that these guys like work around this every single mm-hmm. day. This isn't new to them. Maybe we can try to enlighten them to our perspective of mm-hmm. like, okay, from someone who's not a machinist, never works around this stuff. Here's what I see. I see this thing spinning at X amount of RPMs that at any point could disarm, maim, fatally injure, fatally uh, kill you, and uh, that's what I see. Right. You know, and is all of that being said, you still feel like there's 100 percent you're set up for success. Yeah. You know, well, I, th- I think I think that's a really um, that's a really interesting approach to take, right? I think I think that having that conversation, approaching it from a, an aspect of going out and trying to learn. Yeah. Right. And say, I'm not a machinist. I'm not this. I'm not that. Explain this to me. Let's let's talk about it. You you kind of build credibility right off the bat, and people are willing to show you stuff. And they go, oh, this kind of sucks. Let me show you what happens. Oh, and right. if you think that's bad, let me show you this one. This one definitely would kill you. Yeah. Right. And you you get you get back. You're gaining operational intelligence, and even tying that back into some of the response when they say, let me show you this situation where we almost die a lot. You got to be willing to say <laughs> thank you. Right. You have to be willing to say thank you for showing me that. But yeah, it's it's. Um, it's really interesting because for me, um, we end up in this space where we think that uh, kind of back to just safety practitioners, leaders, managers, we think that our job is to go out and remove risk when really we don't ever, we can't ever really remove risk, right? The risk is always going to be there. Right. And it's really about teaching people how to, 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 to be risk adaptive and because it's going to be there, right? To your point, I think, I don't think we, and again, it's going to, it's the folks that send me hate mail about the zero stuff um, <laughs> where, where people are going to get bumps are going to get scratches. They're going to have stuff like that happen, right? It's okay. It, that's okay. That's part of life and work, right? Um, I love the way, uh, and this is a shameless still from Sydney Decker. I can't keep my house incident injury free. I don't know how you keep a power plant incident injury free, mm-hmm. right? I, I can't, I, I've, I've got a five-year-old, right? I don't, I, I can't. I, I can't like I have injuries in my house every single day, right? So I don't know how you can 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 take a massive generating f- facility and expect bad things not to happen. Expect expect bumps and bruises and stuff not to happen um, when the risk is so much greater, right? So so much of that is just to say that um, it's not really about saying okay we're going to remove risk from your job. It's saying that we want you to be risk adaptive and we want you to understand how to match control to risk. And especially where it's really important, especially where it's the stuff that does kill you, where it is the sticky stuff. How do you match control to the level of risk that you're dealing with? And circle back to the goal. If you're managing controls instead of risk, you're 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 working toward the right direction. Right, right. And that's 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 always an interesting point because we we um, even kind of lending back to some of our metric conversation. Um, it's kind of back to that, right? What what, are, what are, we should focus on the input side. 
rather than the output side, right? Mm -hmm. If we're really focused on the input, um, then the output's going to change. We're trying to fix the output by working on the output. It just doesn't really work really well, right? Right. <laughs> um, what else, man? Anything else you want to throw out there? We've been going for uh, sort of the folks listening. This will be two episodes, just FYI, oh, okay. because we, we've been going for Jeez. we've been going for an hour and forty four minutes. Oh man. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, if she's, she'll have me back some other time. I'm sure I'll be able to say more, but I think I'm pretty spent. For yeah, that. yeah. So for, for those that, that don't realize this, um, it's, it's, a, it's 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we're doing this one after hours. It's the only time that Ian and I could connect, but we made it happen. So it, it's all for your listening pleasure. So if we sound super tired or we got rambly at all, it's because it is 11 o'clock at <laughs> but I think it was awesome, man. I think this was this was awesome. I, nice I, conversation. I pre appreciate you having me on. Uh, I'm actually a big fan of the podcast. Once you told me about it, I started listening to. Uh, I actually don't listen to your three minute videos, or mm -hmm. I'm sorry, uh, podcasts. I listen to the ones oh, you man, have guests. I see, I see how it is, man. I listen. <laughs> I listen to where you have guests because um, you know you've really improved from the. First, I mean, not saying you were bad, but you mm -hmm. really improved your interview. Uh, really demeanor skills from the first one to now, and I, I'm I'm real excited to see where this podcast goes. I really yeah. I'm, I'm really happy to be on, and uh, thank you for offering. No, that's awesome, man. It's, it's, again, it's it's awesome to hear that, especially coming from you. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I share that with people. Um, when I started into this thing, um, I was not a podcaster, right? <laughs> definitely not a. a, a an interviewer <laughs> by any means. So to hear that it's improved is awesome because th they start rough. So anybody out there that's not podcasting, that's going to start podcasting, just understand that you get better by doing right. That, that's, mm. that's how you do it. That's how I did it. And it's continually getting better, but no, I think it was awesome, man. And, I, and, and so I'm going to hold you to that. So I'm going to invite you back on at some point. Sweet. So I think we can, I think we can probably go, Again, we've we just scratched the surface and we're two hours in, so I think I think we could probably do a few more of these at awesome. some point, and I'm sure we're going to get some requests for that. So, uh, man, it's just awesome to have you here. This is this is awesome. So you got a sweet setup live live in the Hop Nerd Studio is what I'll call it. It's, it's come my, check it out. My AKA my house, my cubbyhole of an office type thing. It's pretty legit. You should come. <laughs> you know, somebody somebody come check it out. It's pretty awesome. I love it. Well, good deal, man. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Sam. See ya. Well, that was super awesome. What do you think about it? Like it? Love it? Hate it? Gotta have it? Again, I think I know what your answer is going to be. Just an awesome conversation. Um, it's funny because as I go back and listen to it, you can really tell that we were starting to get a little worn out towards the end. Um, we were pushing towards midnight <laughs> while we were doing this thing. So, you know, we're, we... Uh, we did our normal kind of daytime stuff and then said, hey, you got time for a podcast? And so we started at 8 or 9 o'clock, you know, and then we just kept going and going and going. And this is what you got. So I loved it. I thought it was awesome. I can't wait to have Ian back on. I'm sure I'm going to hear that from you as well, that you want to have Ian back on. He is just a wealth of knowledge. Again, make sure you go over, follow along with him on LinkedIn, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure he won't mind if you get into touch with him. Until next time, it is Sam Goodman, the Hop Nerd, signing off. Bye, everybody. Bye.